Yeah. So I guess, yeah, let's get right into it. Um, I guess, which number one seed are we more disappointed with? The Utah Jazz or the 76ers? 76ers by a mile. Like the Jazz is really weird. I like part of me really wants to be disappointed in the Jazz and I am, but I'm not like Rudy Gobert is a weird player. And I think he's a weird player to really evaluate because he's one of those like few defensive big men. That, that's purely a defensive big man. He's a screen and roll dude who actually just stops people in the paint. But then everyone's like, Oh, we can shoot 30 feet plus now. So like now Rudy Gobert changes how you, how you, he plays feels less effective. But all his advanced stats are like, oh, my God, he's fantastic. But at the same time, it's like, all right, cool, congratulations. Like, you can stop people at the rim, but now people are shooting from farther away from where you're defending. And you could still get taken on one-on-ones all the time on, you know, screen and rolls. And if you switch, you're screwed. So it's just like that's your second best player, if not your best player, right? And then Donovan Mitchell's that dude who's getting you a bucket here and there. I don't know. The guy that kills me is Mike Conley. I don't know. (laughs) Like, I want him to be good. I want him to be better. He's not and, bad. That's why he's better. And honestly, like in game six, especially like Conley definitely was not a hundred percent because he was coming back from injury and definitely understand that. But with the Rudy Gobert thing, I was super frustrated watching game five and game six because Kawhi Leonard isn't playing. And this is the Clippers playing five out. And if Nick Batum, Terrence Mann and Marcus Morris are enough to nullify Rudy Gobert's defensive abilities because them playing five out, they just, with Rudy, they kept him in the paint. They had, they basically gave up so many threes. The Clippers end up shooting 51% in that game six to win the whole thing. And after the game, Rudy said, yeah, that was the defensive scheme. It was to give guys like Terrence Mann open threes. And Sure, like that works with a lot of teams and Terrence Mann isn't like, you know, Seth Curry or Steph Curry, (laughs) but, you know, it's still, the Clippers are a team that shot over 40% from three during the regular season. And your recipe to stop this team and keep Rudy Gobert out there is to give up open threes. (laughs) Like, how, how do you expect to win a series? And then when Kawhi Leonard isn't there, especially, that makes this much worse to me because this wasn't even their best small ball lineup they could throw out there. And it totally, Rudy Gobert was a minus 24 for the Utah Jazz. And see, like, I think we have to give credit where credit's due because it's not really the worst defensive strategy of all time to be like, hey, we're going to let the role players take threes and we'll cut our losses there. That's not always a bad strategy. It just hurts when the Clippers decide we're going to hit every shot and Paul George is going to play like he's in the regular season again because that needed to happen, right? Like, it's just tough because what Rudy Gobert brings to you fits every other team but the Clippers, especially right. when we get into the West, right? You want to go against up, go with AD? Oh, Rudy Gobert can kind of work in that situation. Jokic, that's where Gobert's going to shine, right? Even let's say like a guy like Jaron Jackson Jr. who might space the floor a bit more, he's still tall, right? You could put a tall guy on a tall guy, but like him guarding Batoon just doesn't make sense. But it's a matchup <laughs> that's there, and that's where the Clippers took advantage of that. And also, sometimes you shoot 50% from three. What are you going to do? You know, Quinchin, right. you can't draw it up better. But, like, th- the reason they were shooting that high was because of how open they were a lot of these times. Because, the, like, Rudy Gobert in the postgame, he basically said the plan was we were going to stop Reggie Jackson and Paul George from driving in. So he was going to stay closer to the paint to block shots. And in doing so, they gave up open threes to guys like Marcus Morris, Terrence Mann, and Nick Batum. Like, this is where the critique is more of the Utah Jazz front office. I'm perplexed that they spent the whole mid-level exception on their backup center. They brought back Derek Favors, who has the same liabilities that Rudy Gobert has. You put in Derek Favors, and you're still going to have these problems. It's been even worse because Favors isn't as good at shot blocking or switching as Rudy Gobert is. And you just have another center who cannot guard the perimeter if the Jazz had some type of small ball five option, that would have been ideal. Like, I don't even necessarily blame Rudy Gobert. Like, I think the Jazz should have seen this as a weakness, and they, they need to reevaluate that going forward. Just try to get somebody who can play small ball five in these minutes because you're going to run into a team in the postseason that can play five out. Like, that's going to happen. 
Yeah, but like, who who do you pick up? I think is like the question with that because a small ball five is not a mid level exception player anymore. Right, right. Like a guy like Serge Ibaka still has value because he's the epitome of a small ball five. But there's not a lot of Serge Ibaka's around in the NBA. Right. And finding those guys is a pain, right? Like Nicholas Batum is like he's not a small ball five. We could say he's one because he's in this very specific <laughs> system for one, but he's really not. Like the man is just a hustling his case off. You know who's a small ball five kind of? PJ Tucker. That's right. why. They, that's why Milwaukee traded a lot for him, right? Like I understand where the frustration comes in because you don't have like that versatility to go. Okay, it's either go bear or bust. But it's like small. Finding a small ball five is going to take guys off that bench, and that's kind of like the like this the poison they had to swallow, which okay, you have a deeper bench, right? You can go to like a Jordan Clarkson or even a Derek Favors who's he's somewhat, he's still there. He's a little older. <laughs> Offensively, he's still got something right. to tank. You know, like he's not a bad player. He's just not defensively that great. But like, if you want a small ball five, you're going to give up more to get that. And it's not, they're not mid-level exception players anymore. That's a, it's just really weird with the Jazz because it's like, you have a lot of really good players. You need one of them to be a superstar. You're hoping it's Donovan Mitchell, but secretly, you know, Rudy Gobert is kind of supposed to be the best player on the floor. And it's but, really weird. And it's it's tough because I, you're a small market team. So I don't know if the Jazz really could have paid less for Rudy Gobert. But with the amount they're paying him right now, it's going to make all of these moves much harder. And then you bring into play that they're also probably going to want to just extend Mike Conley this offseason and try to he obviously declined the player option, but he's probably going to get a two or three year deal, 20, 25 million range. And that's going to put them way into the tax. They still have a lot of their picks and some second rounders they can trade for other things, but it is going to be tough for them to make additions to this roster. And with just how wide open, like we're going to talk about this when we get into the 76ers, but given how wide open this title is, either the Clippers or Chris Paul are going to make the finals this year. <laughs> like th- this feels like a very wide open championship year, probably the most wide open in Spence since 2015 when the Warriors won the whole thing, but, and they lose to a Clippers team in two straight games that doesn't have Kawhi Leonard and really exposed Rudy Gobert defensively. Yeah. They just changed the game plan. And then sometimes we have to, this is where, if we want to critique the Jazz, we have to give the Clippers credit at the same time. Right. They switched the game plan up real well, and people showed up. Terrence Mann decided he's going to have his career game when given the opportunity, right? We talk about having these depth, having a lot of this, and that's what, like, the Jazz's issue and plus at the same time, right, this depth idea. But, you know, there's something about it when the series is on the line or there's a chance for you to take this, you know, take the series and you hit the shots. Like, the, that's something right. special in its own right, and it's like – you have to give Terrence Mann and Paul George. I hate to do it. I hate Paul George, but we have to give him his credit, right? He turned up. He had a fantastic game. He played as a leader. He played like we remember him in Indiana and loved him for, right? Right. He played like a number one in that moment. So yeah, it's frustrating. But also when you see the best, when you see a team adjust and then fit that role, there's also an impressive amount that I've give, you have to give credit to Ty- Tyron Lue, a guy who's found a way to make adjustments that also works, right? Like it's one thing to expose Rudy Gobert, but it's also another to just feel like you're getting the best out of every one of your guys after your best players out. Cause in a way they almost felt like everyone else lifted up for him. And then, you know, is that, is this some weird metaphorical, Oh my God, look at him. They're picking up for his teammate. Yeah, no, but like, <laughs> or it's like, even with this new system, they work together really well. And I think that's more impressive than the jazz, not adjusting as well because they couldn't like the fact that you just go right. from, top 10 player in the league out with a knee injury that might take him out for the rest of the playoffs to seeing your number two guy step up and look like the MVP candidate. He wants it. He was at one point to now everybody else figuring it out and looking like a competent team. The Clippers deserve credit for that. And we really shot on them last year for not being good and struggling right. this year. They're doing the exact opposite and that deserves the same amount of recognition and talk. No, I definitely agree. And what, what, I, what I've been really impressed with with the Clippers is you've had very good performances from guys I haven't really expected it from, like Reggie Jackson has been balling out. He's been hitting a ton of threes, which he's not usually known for. And then Marcus Morris has been playing really well. Obviously, guys like Ivica Zubox are still struggling a little bit in the rotation. But for the most part, all of these role players for the Clippers have been stepping up in this last series and the one against the Mavs that went to seven. So definitely kudos to them, especially after what happened last year. Frankly, what happened this postseason, going down 0-2 twice in a row, no team has ever done that in a single postseason. So 
definitely massive props to this Clippers team for overcoming that. And then winning two straight without Kawhi, one on the road in Utah, which has been the toughest place to win this whole season. I mean, it's been a remarkable journey just watching this Clippers team this postseason. And so do we like now take this and pivot and just start blaming Doc Rivers for every one of the failures of the Clippers because it's very realistic and everyone's going to start doing it because the 76ers choked away that series? Okay, so I I personally – so Doc Rivers, I don't know how much he is really to blame in this series. So I think there's two, there's two main things that I think Doc did that were mistakes where there were some of these games where in the late first quarter – he would be playing those all bench lineups that would just get destroyed. And he kept doing that for two or three games in a row. Those I think were big Doc Rivers mistakes, but like Ben Simmons not taking a shot and not being aggressive in fourth quarters, Ben Simmons passing up an open layup to a contested Matisse Thibault layup late in the fourth quarter of game seven. I don't know how much you can really blame Doc Rivers for that. And what I was frustrated, I'm on the blame Ben Simmons train, if you couldn't tell. Uh, <laughs> but with this series, what I found frustrated was I thought Tobias Harris was playing at an all-star level. I thought Joel Embiid was playing at his MVP level, averaging around 30 points per game, 47% shooting, all of those good stats. And then Seth Curry was playing incredibly well, shooting 21 points per game, and then almost 60% shooting from the field, 50% shooting from three, Ben Simmons is the one who really dropped off. He was averaging about 10 points per game, eight and a half assists. And he was very good defensively for the Sixers on Trey Young. And I give him credit, unlike a guy like Rudy Gobert, who's sort of outplayed defensively. He did play very well guarding Trey Young. But the hack of Simmons stuff really, with him shooting 36% from the free throw line, very frustrating to watch. And then just his reluctance to take any shots in the fourth quarter and relieve any pressure. I was frustrated at that because Ben Simmons is an all-star player and he is good enough to, even if he can only shoot at the rim to get to his shots. And it felt like he couldn't do that for three or four straight fourth quarters. I think what kills me the most about this is first of all, somebody way a while back, I wonder who we might even said on the show or at least somewhere where we talked about 76 it was really like, Hey, this Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons thing doesn't make sense. And now everyone's like, it doesn't make sense. Like, wow, <laughs> crazy. But like, what frustrates me the most is that it's not even just that Simmons played poorly because guys are going to play poorly in series. That happens. It's not, you know, like life goes on. It's how it looked. It was like, he didn't look confident going to the free throw line. Like I was listening to Bomani Jones at uh, the right time. A fantastic podcast, right? Anyone oh, I love that podcast. Yeah. He goes like, at least Shaq when he gets hacked, right? Like, and he, he he looks like he's gonna make him. Like, he doesn't step up to the line. It looks like he's peeing his pants at the line. He looks confident. He's gonna try to make it. Then he misses. But everyone's like, all right, he still has the confidence to shoot him. Ben Simmons got to the line and looked at it like he was looking at somebody he's never seen before, and you just scare out of his mind. And he's a guy who's supposed to be a leader. He's the number two guy on that team, and it all like you said, all star player and a interesting player at the most right if we want to be very not generous to be so very interesting and different player you know <laughs> but he's a talented player who has a lot going for him it's just on a team that doesn't really make sense at times and what this really proved to me more than anything is like you can have arguably the best big man or one of the best big men right because you can go with the Embiid um Jokic argument all day that's fine you know but like Embiid played his you know one off on a bad knee, on a bad meniscus, and still played like an MVP caliber right. type player on that level. But you need a wing, you know, like you need a wing, like almost, I don't say even superstar, but a wing star, you know, a guy who can really pull up. And that's what Ben Simmons was supposed to be, but then he just doesn't shoot. And it's like, you don't really, he just doesn't fit that system well because his whole game is kind of like LeBron's younger version of himself. Where like, if you kind of, if you want to beat LeBron, you let him shoot. And LeBron would take the shots and miss, right? But the best LeBron is still attacking the rim, kicking out, or attacking the rim, faking, and then dunking or putting up a, a layup, right? To some degree. Right. Even 38-year-old LeBron's doing that right now, right? You know, outside of his one dribble stat, like, pull-up, which is one of the weakest basketball moves ever. It's fantastic. <laughs> but, like, that's the whole game of LeBron. You have to build guys around him. There's never truly been that core around that because you've always had Joel Embiid, who's still a back to the basket. I am bigger than you, and I will take you to the lane. 
big man. Well, it's like, all right, cool. So what's the pick and roll turn into? Oh, just two guys now in the paint taking up space. Right. And even with Danny Green and Seth Curry, and there's some like idea of like shooters. <laughs> wow. You know, he also could have kept JJ Reddick. Right. Like there's still right. so many pieces around there. Even Parkel Fultz. Like, oh my God, things that could have made so much of a difference. I think if anything, it, it just kind of reminds you like right now, it's still a wings game. And it's ever since Jordan, really, that's what it's kind of, it's been like, you need a guy who can't just back up into the basket. Cause that takes time. Joel Embiid doesn't score in five seconds, right? He gets the ball in the post. It's a one, two, maybe a hook one, two fake. That takes time. It takes extra effort, right? When you can just pull him from the parking lot or even just create from the wing and take a three. It's like all, it's the same amount of work, but maybe one more point or just more ways to get there. And that's what it hurts with Ben Simmons is you only have one way to get there and that's a layup. And he didn't even take it when he needed to pass it to Mathibel. And what was really frustrating, like what's really frustrating is I have been a Ben Simmons defender for a long time. I really like the things he does well. It feels like there's no one who can do those things better than him in terms of passing, in terms of screening, in terms of his transition scoring, in his defensive capabilities, like when he's running the offense and when he can get to the paint, maybe not so much in the half court, but definitely in the full court game, Ben Simmons is unstoppable. But when this became kind of a half court game in game seven, I couldn't really tell what Ben Simmons game was because it just felt like he was a liability. And I mean, I, I honestly, I, I couldn't really argue against Doc Rivers putting Tyrese Maxey in the game over him for stretches and Tyrese Maxey is a 20 year old rookie. Yeah. And I, you're totally right. Like just like the fact that Maxey just had to kind of pop in also a very good pick, but it's just like when you get in the situation in the half court, right. You need to run some type of set and you're going to run it with your best player and your second best player. Right. That's like your dream is you run offensive sets, like your best offensive players to thrive. What's a set that it, and ends up getting Embiid an open opportunity or Simmons an open opportunity without clashing each other? That it feels like very the limited. set is you have Ben Simmons cross the half court line, give the outlet pass to Joel Embiid in the post, and okay, let him either get Simmons free throws or cut. Because if Ben Simmons cuts, now the lane's clogged, right? Because you already have a defender right. in the lane. Then you have a guy cutting. So if it's something fit, like unless he gets the cut and everyone else is spaced wide out. That's like your best opportunity, barring, you know, like a switch or someone just kind of helping right. off a little bit. Then it's like, oh, that's gone. Because like, what if you have Shake Milton in there, right? As your other third guy, because you have Simmons, let's say you have Curry, you got Danny Green even, right? right. And you even, or even throw Maxi out there. Like one of those three guys, you can say, ah, we'll take our chances. They shoot a three over Ben Simmons dunking, right? Which is kind of sus. Like you would hope that those guys who are supposed to be shooters hit the shot, but just like, there's so few ways for those two to create, especially in the half court opportunities where they could both score without them limiting that opportunity because they both have to be around the paint. Yes. Joel B can shoot a three, but you want to make him pick and pop 10 times a game. No, you don't because if they did, they would do it, but they okay, don't, so, they don't want to. So we were talking about the small ball five earlier with Utah. And I was arguing with one of my friends that I would really like to see an experiment where you put a guy like Ben Simmons as the small ball five on a team and you surround him with like four shooters. I don't know if that would really work out, but I was just trying to brainstorm some way that Ben Simmons would fit really well on the team because he generates wide open threes for other teammates all the time, but he's not really big enough to be a center. You usually slot him in at the four or the three, and then he just guards whoever. But I just... I was like, cause I don't really think necessarily Ben Simmons takes away from Joel Embiid because Joel Embiid is still getting his points and is still doing it pretty efficiently. You, you could argue maybe having another floor spacer would definitely help that, but I don't think Simmons is necessarily a bad fit with Embiid. It was just Simmons just seems like, it seems like he just couldn't initiate the offense or play at anything aside from a layup. And even that was questionable at times. Like, I saw Doc Rivers said the other day, <laughs> let me pull up this quote because I thought this was pretty funny. He was talking about- Is that the championship about, point guard quote, which is like no, the dumbest No, this thing is the quote about how Ben Simmons is going to improve his shooting stroke. So this is what Doc Rivers said. I believe without going into detail with what we're doing, I believe we know what the right work is and the right type of work and the right way to do it. You can do the work all the time. 
But if it's not done in the right way, the right type of work, you may not improve. <laughs> but just like I saw that quote of Doc Rivers talking about improving the jump shot. And I was just like, bro, they've got nothing. Like you, you got to do the right type of work, you know, and if you're doing the right type of work, you're going to succeed. Like, I really think the Sixers are going to trade, trade Ben Simmons. I, I just, if you're saying quotes like that, that screams like, okay, we're going to try to talk up the Ben Simmons development train. We don't really have a plan for this. And we're also taking calls from the Sacramento Kings or. <laughs> you told me Tyrese Halliburton comes in right now for Ben Simmons. I'd do a straight swap. First of all, they like Tyrese Halliburton, my guy. Second of all, I don't think that Simmons, like, and like Simmons takes away from Embiid, I think Embiid takes away from Simmons, if that makes sense, right? Like Embiid's getting his buckets, he proved that all series, but you got to give and take, right? Because if you give Embiid the ball in the post and you have Simmons cut and he's not getting the ball, well, now you're getting away, you're losing some of those opportunities. You can only do one play so many times. We are in the NBA of all things now, right? Like guys so you, can scheme for that. But are you saying like in that situation, like to me, the only centers that I see that would fit with Simmons in that case would be like a stretch five right you know the secret would be, would be you put him on memphis and you have jaron jackson jr spread the floor out because i still am a jaron jackson jr stan um but like even if you had simmons like i simmons as a point guard is kind of like your go-to is but you have to have it where you either go small and you have him being like a bigger group like you play him like a magic johnson almost like right magic johnson creates and everyone else kind of follows their way and either you know five out backdoor cuts like this, or you kind of run them like Pascal Siakam, which is kind of what you were describing at first, like this weirdish small ball five or a four that right. kind of runs like the baseline. But the thing is like with those two, because they're so paint centric and one guy can step out a bit, but like it's limited is one's going to take away from the other. Cause you could do the same thing with Ben Simmons. If you wanted to run the offense through Ben Simmons, you could, but then you have to start giving opportunity away from Joel Embiid, but they're going to be in the same area, right? It's not like a give and take where it's like, oh, I'm going to pick and roll one time, then pick and pop, and it's going to work. Or even you switch these things up. There's so limited opportunities that they start taking away more than other stars will. Even like, let's say, Paul George and Kawhi, right? Like if it Kawhi starts going off, Paul George can send the corner and he's supposed to hit threes. Granted, you know, sometimes they go off the backboard, but like life goes on. Like for the <laughs> most part, there's some like type of sense there where like you can still get something out of Paul George, right? Or he can turn into a baseline cutter. He can turn into even a screener. You know, like there's only, but there's only so few things in my mind, like those two can do together well. And they start taking away from each other because they're so, they're in one spot. You know, they're not on different sides of the court. They're not going high, low. It's more, we're all going down low. We're figuring it out. And it's like, that doesn't work anymore. Especially when you have a guy who I, Trey Young's turning up, right? He's, he's shooting from the parking lot. Now we need a one guy who needs to hit those parking lot threes. He's doing it. And like, I think my favorite part about this whole series is like the Atlanta Hawks have turned into this really weird villain. Okay. Like, okay. Any team right. who's going to play the Knicks was going to be the villain. That's fine. Like we already knew that was going to happen, but like the second series, they've been kind of a-holes, right? Like John Collins walks into an interview wearing a shirt where he's dunking on Joel Embiid <laughs> and we just kind of like glossed over it because Ben Simmons doesn't shoot a jump shot. Like, right. do you know how kind of crazy that is to, like, this kind of macho, oh, man, we're the villain now is so crazy to me that they're just so cool with it. Like, I love it. And no, I don't I know how long it's going to last, but, like, this has been such now an underdeveloped storyline because everyone was like, oh, we just want the Knicks to win because Knicks never did anything for 45 years. Right. And it's like, oh, now that they're, like, playing real teams, this villain thing is kind of fun, but, like, I kind of hope the Milwaukee Bucks are, like, hey we're not here for this you know what like Did i'm really see, excited to see that series do you remember i think it was i think it was game six when this happened this was the john collins Joel Embiid confrontation that ended in the double tax where john collins like smacks Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid doesn't even hit him he just like comes out arms fully extended and he just like gets in john collins face and he's just like really you're gonna do this like with John Collins, I just thought that was so funny because it's like, bro, like, sure, but you're it's a like good this role weird guy. antagonist role. It's <laughs> like you know John Collins is not better than like than Joel Embiid, but he's gonna yeah. act like it, and it, like, in some way you have to respect it because they're winning games, right? Or like, I don't know, where Kevin Herter's like, you know what, I'm gonna be this white dude from Maryland, and, you know, like, remember this is just some random dude who has some potential. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna go off like forty, like. 
okay. And it just had some swagger to it. They're like, yeah, we call him Kayvon with the with the apostrophe. I'm like, <laughs> like there's a there's a weird energy coming out of Atlanta right now, but it's one that I have to respect because it's so like not I don't even say like vulgar, but just straight so straightforward. Like Atlanta's coming out every game and they're like, we're gonna beat you, even if they shouldn't be. And it's not a bad thing. You know what? Like coming in with that energy and they're playing like a playoff team, right? Like I forgot they had Lou Will on that bench. I forgot that they had Rajon Rondo for a second. And they're playing like a team that has a little bit of this young energy, like we're better than you. Yeah, let's go. But also like, hey, we know how to actually win a series and play in a playoff series. And it's working really well. Yeah, you also forgot to mention biker gang Mohawk, uh, Danilo Gallinari. <laughs> God, Danilo Gallinari. No, it's it's been incredible. And let's just talk about three of the last four games in this series. So game four, the Sixers have an 18-point lead. They win that game. They go up 3-1. Game five, they blow a 26-point lead at home. And then in game seven, they lose at the game seven at home in a game where Trey Young shoots five of 23 and Kevin Herter, who looks like he's Rick Astley, goes out there and murders you, just scores 27 on you efficiently. And this is a night where Trey Young's not scoring. Kevin Herter like took a lot of the scoring burden on for some reason and really showed up. Like that was... To me, I think that has to be the most disappointing thing if you're a Philly fan, that it wasn't like Trey Young shot like 10 logo shots, like, ah, oh, there's nothing you can do. These are just crazy shots. It's Trey being Trey. It's Kevin Herter was doing this to you. And this is a Philly team that has the, like, what, number two defense in the NBA. We've been talking about all season as this defensive stopping team that did a good job making Trey Young take tough shots. But all of these other Hawks guys stepped up. And so Philly's all-star Ben Simmons wasn't there. Like if you're Daryl Morey, like I saw Daryl Morey today came out and he said, if we're barely squeaking by the second round, I don't think we're good enough to win a championship. I can't really argue with that assessment, just judging by the fact that it's not like they lost to a Nets team, to a Bucks team. They lost to an Atlanta Hawks team with little to no defense in Trey Young's first ever postseason. Like, well, and that's where, like, and if you want to turn, you know, flip the table around here, where you go as, like, a Hawks fan, you go, like, this is two, this is a series we really shouldn't have been in. Like, you know, this is a series where defensively they're just way bigger than us. That was, like, the one thing about the Sixers that always excited people. It's like, hey, yeah, they maybe, you know, have some offensive issues, but they're long. It's just, like, putting a bunch of tall people together and just <laughs> limiting the court which was something that's so interesting to like see fail but it's what really excites me about this team is like in the biggest moment it wasn't Trey Young but he kept one shooting like it was Trey Young which you have to do sometimes right like right I expect his hustle for him going out there like taking shots when you know you have to be the guy to do it and he but, did turn it up in the fourth quarter credit to him yeah but he, like this well, that wasn't his game like we, if you sit <laughs> right. there and you're like this is this the game for Trey Young to become a star it wasn't, and he didn't play like it, but they, then a guy picks him up. And that's something where you go like, wow, what have we been missing? You know, yes, the Hawks had some injuries early in the year and they kind of had to come together. This is a really new core and group that kind of got built on the last like off season, but it's like, they're playing together. And so this energy, at first it felt like it was only coming from Trey Young because he's having like this Madison Square Garden series, right? It's kind of like a record book thing. You know, you're probably, you see it all over Twitter. It's on TikTok now where it's like, just him staring at MSG laughing, you know, that underdog mentality. Then the whole team's got it now. John Collins is showing off some swagger, right? Kevin Herter's playing really well. So it's like, you see the two different, you see the difference in confidence. And that's also something where we go, we can go back to Ben Simmons, right? Like Ben Simmons looked scared. He looked like he did not want to be there. He looked flustered. And Trey Young, he even not having a great game, looked confident. He looked confident the whole series. And look how the two teams performed around that, right? He shot the lights out in game and six. And even when he didn't, his teammates were still felt like he was going to. And it's like, whenever Ben Simmons went to the free throw line, I couldn't tell you a Phillies player that was like, yeah, he's going to hit them for sure. They're going to say it on the bench, you know. They're going to hype him up. They're teammates. They're boys. But, like, if you're sitting there, really, are you like, I don't know if he's going to hit both of these. 
But Trey Young can take one from 30 feet from the parking lot after missing six in a row, but you're going to go, he might, he'll hit the seventh. And that's, right. that's such a different and interesting mentality moment where you look at the series, it's just two teams in different spots mentally. And like, that makes a difference when and, you, even and, when you're up 20 or down 20. And the younger team that hadn't made the playoffs during this rebuild cycle had that better mentality. And this Philly team that, no, they've had different pieces, but they still have championship guys who have been on that team with Danny Green, with Dwight Howard, guys who've been in the postseason a few years in a row. And that mentality just wasn't there, but it was in this Hawks team. And you talk about how this Hawks team was a young team coming into the season, but let's also remember a few months ago, they fired Lloyd Pierce. They bring in Nate McMullen. The season was turning into a disaster. They're around the 10th, 11th seed in the East. And then they end up at the fifth seed. They beat the Knicks in five games, and now they've beaten the Philadelphia 76ers in seven. I mean, this has been a crazy journey for them since the beginning of the season. Different head coach. Now they're in the Eastern Conference Finals. Like, no one predicted this from the beginning of the season. I interviewed uh, Brad Rowland, who covers the Atlanta Hawks, and he was kind of hinting, like, ah, yeah, you know, we're going to, they're going to try to get the sixth, seventh seed, you know, try to make the playoffs first time with these additions. I was thinking, like, you know what? That's a good goal to have. You know, you add in these pieces, it's going to be Trey Young's first, like, serious season, but they've exceeded everyone's expectations this year. And like we were saying with the Clippers, credit to this Hawks team for defeating a tough Philly opponent on the road in game seven. And especially Trey Young going against that adversity, continuing to shoot. He was two of 16 at one point in the third quarter. And then the fourth quarter, he shot pretty well, just kind of continuing in that rhythm saying, you know, I'm going to continue trying to get to my shot, even if it's not falling right now, hope things turn around, really embracing that Mamba mentality there. And it worked out for him. And the Hawks were able to win this series. I still think they're going to get swept by the Milwaukee Bucks that probably. I don't think that I okay I think the Bucks are a better team and they should win it but the Hawks play like a team that have nothing to lose right and you know there's something special that you know what the Bucks have on them pressure right <laughs> like there's an immense amount of pressure to be like all right you don't have to worry about you took out the Nets like you took out the team that everyone thought was going to kill you right they're supposed to be the Grim Reaper team in the east here really their colors are black and white right they're supposed to be out here and taking everybody's name and number well, with a little bit of love and injuries, like now you're sitting here in the conference finals. This is supposed to be your time that you get there, right? What does Trey Young have to lose? What does Kevin Herter have to lose? What does John Collins have to lose? This isn't not- like if the Hawks lose, there's not going to be like 10 YouTube videos that immediately drop that say Trey Young has destroyed his legacy. Trey Young's legacy is on the line next season. We're like, if the Bucs lose, everyone's going to be like, Giannis signed the Supermax extension and for what? They lose to the Eastern Conference Finals to a team in their first postseason since 2017. What does this say about the city of Milwaukee and the Hawks? What does it say about like Mike Boonholzer, right? You've put a lot of faith and effort into him and you've kept him around. He doesn't make a lot of changes, right? That dude's coaching for his job, right? Right. David Mill isn't. David Mill can throw out a five-guard lineup. Who's going to fire him? The guys expe- exceeded expectations, right? We talked about Lloyd Pierce being fired in the middle of the season. That rough little patch, now they're a conference finals team, right? This team has nothing to lose. They played like it so far this series, and they're going to continue to do that. The Bucs have that pressure on them. Do I still think that this is, do I think this is going to turn into a massive, oh, my God, the Hawks just run this energy all the way through. It's a storybook series. No, but, like, there is something to be said about, okay, what happens if the Hawks take a game at home, you know, or what happens if it, you know, Giannis has a bad game or two and Chris Milton doesn't decide to show up, right? What happens if Drew Holiday just struggles, right? Like there's so many more pieces there on the Bucks side that have to perform because there's not an excuse, right? Drew Holiday is one of the best defensive guards in the league. That means that Trey Young should be having a tough time. What if Trey Young drops 43 games in a row, right? Like, well, now the Drew Holiday trade, who everyone, you know, all the, the basketball nerds are like, Drew Holiday, what a, what a great pickup. What a great guy. What if he gets cooked? What if he gets torched? Right? What if Chris Milton decides not to hit a shot? You know, this is still not a perfect Bucks team. Not to me, Hayden on the Bucks. Right. It's just like, I am very high on the Hawks because they've played like a team. They've played fearless. They've played fun. And I've enjoyed that. And it's, you know, somewhere it's like, you have to take it a fact. Like, they weren't supposed to beat the 76ers. You know, like, they shouldn't have a shot against them. And they took them to seven and beat them on the 76ers home floor. 
That's impressive. Right. We need to give that that props there. And this is a Bucks team that's not going to make an adjustment. So it's like, do we trust Budenholzer and those guys to comfortably sweep them? No, I don't know how you could. <laughs> no, I was I was exaggerating a little bit with the sweep. I think I would say right now probably Bucks and six. I I would say that would be probably where I'm at right now because I think the Hawks can definitely win at least one game at home. Maybe they win that second home game or one of the road games, but. I don't think this one goes to seven and but we, we have to talk about just how chaotic the Eastern conference has been with both of those last two game sevens we had in the semis, we could have very easily had net sixers as the Eastern conference finals. I mean, that Nets game goes to overtime and just because Kevin Durant's feet are too long. And <laughs> I mean, then that Sixers game, despite Ben Simmons not playing well, it was still less than a 10 point game and it came down to a possession with a minute left. I mean, it's been pretty chaotic in the Eastern conference. I like my Western conference a little bit more like a, it's nice and well laid out, you know, like the Suns have a nice sweep in there and then the Clippers kind of, they, they win in the nice game six. That's a little comfortable, but th- those back-to-back game sevens, in the Eastern conference, I was about to have a heart attack that, uh, <laughs> Well, I think it's because, like, these Eastern Conference teams have obvious glaring weaknesses. And that's been kind of their team construction, right? We're sitting here, we're critiquing the 76ers. It's like you have two paint-centric guys, right? You're a very good defensive team that when it comes down to it, if you keep them, if you stick with them throughout the boxing match, you have a chance of knocking them out because they don't have a good finishing move, right? There you go. Like, what else have we got going on here? Let's look at this East team. The Hawks team can't play defense. We know this is a bad you know, you know, this is a horrible defensive team. What's new, right? Of obvious weakness, the Bucks outside of Giannis, right? You can, it's going to take you a little bit of work, but you can wall up against them. We've realized this, right? What does he do after he gets stopped in the paint? It's a spin move. And then who knows, right? These teams have obvious glaring weaknesses. It feels like in the West, you have a little more complete of teams where like the holes are kind of small. Like there's obviously a hole there. They're not perfect teams, right? You can go to the Clippers and you go, you know, Zubox is your arguably your best big man, right? For real, yeah, unless it's Batum. And it's like, Batum's not really a big man, but he's been kind of lucky in these series because you haven't had that big man presence that you've had against some of these other teams that you've prepared for, right? You know, the Suns, it's like, this is a pretty well-rounded team of just younger, right? But that's not like a glaring weakness. It's just kind of something where it's like, you could see the, you know, some misses, miscues here and there outside of Miss Paul, uh, Chris, I said Miss Paul, Chris Paul. <laughs> Missing now, I think, is it two games? He's going to miss game two because of uh, yep, NBA safety protocols. I believe he is going to miss tonight, yep. And what what I found really impressive, and this might be another uh, <laughs> jab at Rudy Gobert, but DeAndre Ayton played really well against this lineup with Marcus Morris at the center and then with Nick Batum and, like, the few minutes they sprinkled in there with Zubox. And DeAndre Ayton, I tweeted about this the other day, has not gotten enough credit for this son's playoff success where against Anthony Davis against the Lakers team he was averaging over 80 percent shooting from the field in a double double and he did the same thing against a Nuggets team with Nikola Jokic and now he's on track to do a similar team against a Clippers small ball team and it just seems like DeAndre Ayton is a very good, versatile big man who can go up against any of these different lineups, get his shots, but he's not necessarily a post guy. He gets a lot of assists from Devin Booker and Chris Paul, but he gets his spots. He gets the boards. He's very good defensively. And the Suns wouldn't be where they are right now with Dario Saric there. I mean, like this has been very much like a, wow, Devin Booker and Chris Paul are leading the Suns to the title, but Guys like Mikhail Bridges and DeAndre Ayton have really stepped up and performed for this team. See, and like something I always think about when you're building a team is right. Like you can't have the best at every position. Like it's just feasibly impossible, right? Someone's got to give, but your goal is to be like, how much, if it, we, if the best player is, let's say your small forward, um, you know, or let's, we can use the Suns here. Your best two players right now are your point guard and your shooting guard. Dan Booker's one, Paul, uh, Chris Paul's two. DeAndre Aiden three right now. Okay. You know, your fourth is Mikhail Bridges. Mikhail Bridges is an average NBA player. So when he's stacking up to other guys, he's not like completely a lost cause. And that's what makes him so interesting is that now you can attack those matchups and you have more matchups you can attack. 
So Aiden's having a great series because, yeah, he's playing small ball guys. He can take advantage of guys in the post. But throughout the different series, Devin Booker's had his moments because he could take advantage of his matchup when need be. And it's like, it feels like this team has a lot of good players. So you're not getting a drop off whether one guy has to go off and you don't have to like force it down somebody's throat. Chris Paul does not have to make 30 assists per game and every mid-range jumper in the world to win this series, right? Instead, he can do his normal thing. And then maybe we need a little more from Aiden this series because they're smaller. And that can work, but none of these guys have to take on this. I have to beat my matchup by 40 if we want to win. And for some of these other teams, it feels like it was that way, right? It feels like Giannis has to beat his matchup for the Bucks to win games. And he has to destroy his matchup, not just beat him by five or 10, but like absolutely be the best player times three, whoever's defending him. For the Suns, if everyone's plus one, right? If everyone's just a little bit better than their matchup, they'll win a game and they'll win it convincingly right? If they just give a little bit extra to the guy who has the best matchup between the two, right? So if it's an Aiden on Batoon, it's hard to defend against because it's like, oh, let's defend Booker. Okay, I'll just do a screen and roll with Aiden. What are you going to do? Switch and give him a shorter guy? You know, like, and Zubox, I love him, but at times he's just a, he's a walking big man. He's big, he's tall, but he's lanky. He's not strong. He's not a great shot blocker. He's not a great defender. He just has height. That's he's the raw, thing. Like, Zubox is on like unplayable in the playoffs because his his defensive weaknesses it seems like they can get attacked no matter what lineup you get thrown into like he can't really defend the post so if a team goes big with a guy like Jokic AD or Embiid he's screwed and then he also can't switch so then teams like with Luca or Damian Lillard can really feast on that like Zubox this has been a bad year for him defensively and then obviously last year he got destroyed by Jokic well it's just he's he like he's a prospect and we've always treated Zubox like a prospect like oh he'll get it but he's never has and we have to start coming to reality with that I think a little bit is like he's not a bad NBA player but he's a player that's expected to be like an elite big man because he's the only height they have like they they're like you can't coach height right you cannot make somebody 6'10 but you can coach everything else and he hasn't got all the other things but they're like he's 6'10 he's the one kid on the you know the basketball team that if you've ever, you know, ever played, he's just so tall, but he can't catch the pass whenever you throw it to him. So you're like, oh, I really just wish he would catch the pass because he's like a foot taller than his defender. That's what it feels like with Zubox, just on the NBA level. Like, yeah, obviously he'll catch the pass, but you need him to defend a bit in the post. No, he gets bullied around. We need him to step out a little bit on like an Aiden at the high post. Can't do that. He's too slow. It's all those little things. He's a big guy who's just a big development process that we've never really like, I'm not sure if it's the Clippers end or Zubox's end. It just never came together. But we were just like, he's tall. We're going to do the same thing with Poku, right? Like, unless Poku gets some muscle on him, we're going to say he's a six foot 11 dude who can <laughs> shoot the ball. But we're never going to actually do anything to make, like, get him somewhere <laughs> in the league. That's what we're doing with Zubox. Right. Big dude, he's supposed to defend the paint, but we never taught him how to defend the paint or never made him get muscle. And we were wondering why he has to, like, he can't defend people in the paint. No, and that that is. Like, I think the standard we're holding Zubox and to Alexi Bukashevsky is the standard of can you be in a closing five in a playoff game? And if the answer to that is no or eh, then it's really hard to take you seriously as an NBA player in a lot of these games. Like, for example, one thing I was really impressed with the Memphis Grizzlies this year was a guy, Desmond Bain, who's their rookie, who's been shooting really well from three, he was getting like 20, 23 minutes a game. And as a rookie, that really impressed me. Just a guy who could stay on the court in the playoffs and wasn't a walking liability. Zubox just is a liability defensively. And then he doesn't really give you enough offensively to justify all of those glaring weaknesses defensively, especially in the postseason where teams narrow in on those weaknesses. Like, I mean, we just saw the Clippers shoot a million threes and Rudy Gobert's face in game six. And really exploit the one weakness the jazz defense has of playing that five out. And like, if you have enough glaring weaknesses, you aren't going to be able to stay on the court. If there's adequate or average bench guys, who can do the same. Or even star guys, because like who, like who else can defend Deandre Aiden realistically on the Clippers is you're running out of options. And it's just tough because at the same time, you know that this has kind of been the weakness of the Clippers, right? And like, I think the Clippers are more of like an Eastern Conference team in the sense where it's like, this is their one hole, is that they're short, 
right? right? Like it's pretty obvious. Like there's nothing we can really say about it. And it's really unfortunate Serge Ibaka isn't playing because he would have been, I think, an adequate help in this regard of just a guy who can play serviceable defense at this age at the five position. Yeah, I really, and that's, we want to talk about small fives. That's why that guy still has a job, right? Because he could do these type of things. He has at least the muscle to do it, which is something where like with Zubox, that's where it becomes painfully obvious, right? Where it's like, even Boban, when you just want to get to like big guys, he could at least take a hit in the post or two, right? He can't, it feels like Zubox can't even do that. That's where it kills because he has the height. He's naturally there. He has the hardest part of the equation down, but now he just needs to be able to sit in the post and take a hit or two because it's not like a lot of these NBA big men, including DeAndre Hayden, are going to start pulling out Matumbo or Olajuwon footwork and start going past you. You know, yeah, Aiden might give you a nice little up and under every once in a while or something nice, but it's nothing that you just can't keep your hands up for and not jump at and make it painfully obvious, right? If a Aiden, if a DeAndre Aiden was out here doing, you know, basically in the grandpa of the league and just like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to, you know, hit him with this footwork, this move, this move, and it just worked every time, I'd be like, all right, it's a little different. He's not. All he's doing is just, you know, being, being stronger, getting lower and forcing Zubak to get under the basket where you can't really defend him. That's tough when you're the Clippers because you go like, damn. And it's like, then you go, what matchup can we exploit? And that becomes really hard on the Clippers end because you have a lot of guys who can at least match up or at least go close to bucket to bucket with, right? right. Like Chris Paul can go bucket to bucket, if not be better than Reggie Jackson or Pat Be- Patrick Beverly, right? Like if your best player right now is Paul George, you know who's going even with them? Devin Booker. So it's like, where do you win on the court? Right. Clippers don't have that answer, but the Suns do. And that's what makes this series really interesting. And where they would have won would have been Kawhi Leonard because he would just be the guy who can, one, create a shot at any moment, but two, is a fantastic defender and can actually push, you know, let's say a guy like Booker to his limits. But you don't have that. Even though Paul George is supposed to be that, he's not just as good. If he's top 20, you know, he's top 15, Kawhi's top 10 or top five. And they guess that subtle of a difference really hurts when you already have one glaring spot. You have the guy who made up for it. Kawhi made up for those that mistake or that weakness. You don't have that anymore. And do you think the Clippers have any chance of winning this series if Kawhi Leonard does not return? There is always I think there's always an opportunity because that team could shoot. Right. We right. saw it like there is a world where with the Suns, like I think there's a lot of good here, right? I've really talked about how they built the team so well shout out to uh what's his name down there i'm totally blanking. james jones uh, james general manager jones, yeah. yep fantastic he's done a fantastic job great built a great team down there but there's always an opportunity where you just have they have star power on the clippers and two that can just change a game right if paul george has another career game who knows that's one or two right if chris paul keeps going out what happens now that you know yeah campaign's having a good job thank god he's finally finding his place in the league right but it's like okay, who knows? What if Reggie Jackson finally, you know, turns it back up a little bit? It's not a guarantee on the Suns end. It just worked really well. And like what I see in the Suns, I see in the Jazz a bit is this team that doesn't have a superstar. And you can argue Booker's getting into that spot. He just doesn't play any defense. I don't want to go there yet. But like there is some, you know, like with the Jazz, you're like, we need a superstar. We just need one guy to push us over. And the Suns are the exact same spot. They're just winning because they're doing better at exploiting matchups than the Jazz did because the Jazz didn't exploit their matchups and opportunities that they could have better. The Suns are, but that's like the beauty of these teams. It also could be the downfall. So what happened to the Nuggets last year at some point, like a lot of these teams have a lot of the, the one of the hardest parts is getting a superstar right, right now. I think Jokic just stepped up into that spot and that's changed the Nuggets future. But like, but the Suns, once Booker starts playing defense, they'll be at that level. But right now it's a bunch of really, really, really good players, but not one guy that you can go carry me over. And Booker maybe get in there, but not just yet. I was going to say, so my response to that is I think going into next season, Devin Booker is going to be universally a top 10 player in the NBA. And I think he is going to win the finals MVP trophy. I I think because we love offensive works. My problem with Devin Booker is just he's not there defensively. I think he's played like like he hasn't so like obviously he's not playing like Ben Simmons or Rudy Gobert level defense, but I think he has definitely played serviceable defense in this playoffs where he's not a liability out there and he's definitely putting in the work for it to be decent. And the Suns defense, to its credit, has held up in the playoffs where 
a lot of the NBA analytics community was thinking like, uh, you know, the Suns defense in my top off in the playoffs, just because guys like Mikhail Bridges or, you know, Devin Booker aren't locked down guys. And then Chris Paul is very small or DeAndre Aiden would have think it switched out on the perimeter. And as a whole, that hasn't held up. And the Suns have done a decent job playing defense. I just think that with that combination of Chris Paul, Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, at this point in the playoffs, given the teams that are remaining, I think that is good enough, especially with the timely shooting they could get from guys like Jay Crowder, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, and then campaign. I think that will be enough to win a title this year, just because I look at some of these other teams and I see some serious flaws, like the Hawks, I think are just too young and don't have that solid defense. And the Clippers without Kawhi, I think, are going to struggle a little bit if he can't get back. And I think the team you would say that has the best chance against them would be the Milwaukee Bucks. But as a whole, I trust those secondary pieces more on the Suns than I do with the Bucks, where these guys like P.J. Tucker, Pat Connaughton, I think are very solid players and definitely help the Bucks. But I don't necessarily trust them hitting threes over guys like Bridges, like Jay Crowder or even like Cam Johnson or campaign. I don't trust Jay Coward as much as you do because I think Jay <laughs> Coward is like the streakiest shooter of all time. I truly think that when he's hitting like now, he's fantastic. And, you know, but at times like he's really streaky. I trust PJ Tucker a little bit more. He's a better defender. Right. Like in my, th- I think it's going to be really, that series is going to be interesting because now like you have two questions, who guards Booker, but also who guards Giannis. So both sides have a real question on their hands. Then you could put Drew Holiday on Booker, and I think you have a chance there. But now Chris Paul's is going to have a pretty solid series, right? You know, but on the other hand, like, do you put DeAndre Aiden on Giannis? Well, like, if you put DeAndre Aiden too far out of the paint, he's not laterally just – he's getting there. He's a pretty good defender. But, like, is he a Giannis stopper type guy, like a Bam out of bio? I don't know that. You know, I'm not 100% sure on that. And, like, I think those are two teams that are kind of, like, like just different. And will right. actually be – like, you like this is where you can start going to coaching – like that's where you'd start pick. I'd start picking the Suns. Is like, I trust Monty Williams and his ability to like actually decide. Like, yeah, we need to switch this up, you know, or so, change something here and there compared to a Budenholzer who doesn't even change his haircut. <laughs> so with Budenholzer in Game Seven, when you were watching that first uh, six, I think it was five minutes forty six seconds in, Thanasis Antetokounmpo comes in for Giannis for twenty four seconds, and then Giannis comes back into the game. Were you just writing that down? Or are you just like, ah, oh, that's classic Mike Budenholzer, you know, he's going to try to do the short minutes, but then Giannis uh, freaked out, you know, but. I didn't even know what to make of it. Cause I was kind of like, I'm like, you know, are we like having like this wild experiment? Is, are we going to try to like, just, <laughs> you know, so are we trying to, are we really going to sit here? Did he like pull the wrong ounce of the Kupo out for a second? Like, I don't know, maybe he looked on the bench. He saw the last name, even though you see the first names. It was a weird moment. It's just like, you know, the number is 43, you know, we might confuse them. I, I'm, I was like, what's going on? Like, do, do we, are we now becoming the most flexible coach in all the NBA? About time. Like, Budenholzer has to be the coach in the NBA who's like, he is the best coach that makes like moves where you're just like, why, why are we doing this? Like, well, he comes from the school of Greg Popovich, which is, I can win you a lot of regular season games, but I don't do change anything from the regular season to the playoffs because if it works it works right like what are the what do the spurs never do trade a lot of guys right they never they made any cool. mid-season trades like ever and that's on purpose even yeah. when it's crap even when it's going to crap they keep the same guys around because that's how you kind of do it you live and die with that group and that's like the most pop like greg popovich school of business and it worked for him when you had monty ginobili tim you know tony parker and tim duncan guys who it doesn't matter what you do, you can literally just like say Tim Duncan, throw it off the backboard because he'll find a way to hit it, right? That was the beauty in Tim Duncan's game. Or Monty Ginobili, hey, just get a bucket. Do right. It. And it just always work. With a team like the Bucks, you don't have like that three super duper guys who could just win you a game and you don't have to do the same thing, right? With like the Bucks, they look so good in the regular season because you don't have to like, guys are going to take those charges on a Giannis. They aren't going to do the extra thing, you know? get the extra pass whenever Giannis actually finally kicks it out and they do like three kicks around the perimeter, then Pat Connington, I'd say three, right? In the playoffs, that third guy gets a Pat Connington instead of being like, you know what? We just shouldn't let it go. And so like when it comes down to that series, if we get to this finals where it's Suns-Bucks, 
I need to see something where it's not just, let's just throw that, you know, the out there for a little bit for fun. Let's see how it goes, you know, but it's like, Oh, Hey, we're going to make an adjustment here where I don't know, maybe DiVincenzo ends up guarding Chris Paul for significant minutes because of a height advantage or something like that. Right. Like right. throwing every, everything at the wall to see if it works because that's, what's going to win Milwaukee that series because they have, I think, just a little bit more talent on the long end of it, right? I think the Suns are more consistent, but, like, I think you have more peaks and valleys within the Bucks, right? right. Like Dante DiVincenzo at one point could just drop 25, and I wouldn't really be surprised. I think he has that in him, right? Like, if you don't believe me, watch the Villanova championship game. The dude just went crazy for no reason. That's why he got drafted, right? Like, there's guys there. P.J. Tucker could hit eight threes in the corner. Like, it, it could happen. He's had games like that before, but that's the peaks and valley of that team. With the Suns, it's like, you know, Chris Paul's going to give you a good game. Dan Booker can get you a bucket. DeAndre Aiden's going to be good, right? So it's like if Boone Hosler throws things at the wall, forces the Suns right. to adjust, I think there's a real chance for him to win. But if he sits there stuck in those ways, they're going to find a way to beat the Bucs. You have seven games to do it, and the Suns can do it. And if we look at just the last two NBA champions, I think you find that philosophy to be correct with the make adjustments. I mean, the 2019 Toronto Raptors – made a ton of adjustments throughout the playoffs. Nick Nurse is the king of just drawing up random plays. He basically came up with their strategy of defending Giannis at some point between game two and game three, it felt like, because the Bucs destroyed them those first two games. And then Nick Nurse just changed a bunch of stuff up, kind of alternated the minutes with Marc Gasol, Serge Ibaka. And that's what you need to do in playoff runs where you come into these teams that present strategic things. The Lakers did the same thing where they ran out the lineup with JaVale McGee and Anthony Davis one game against the Rockets. They got smashed by like 30 points. And then they came back and were like, no, this is actually a bad idea strategically. We're not going to run this back. We're going to put 80 at the five, move everything up, have more shooting, match up with the Rockets. They're not going to be able to stop anything Anthony Davis does. And boom, they win. I mean, you have to be willing to make these adjustments and change if you want to go all the way, because you're going to go against three or four teams to win a championship. And each of these teams is going to present different challenges and you have to make some type of adjustment throughout. Yeah. And that's been like the biggest flaw of Boonholzer ever since he's taken that job. And if it doesn't change, it's like you're, I sit here and we watch a team that I think is constructurally makes more sense, right? Like, you got rid of Eric Bledsoe. You got Drew Holiday. I think, you know, as much as I was kind of, you know, getting on like, like, what is it? The nerds of NBA Twitter for Drew right. Holiday. He is that guy that fits in like 99% of situations that you put him in. He's a fantastic player that makes sense to go and, you know, hey, defend this guy real quick. Hey, can you get a bucket real quick? He can do both. He's that one of those players. It's just like, you need to throw these things at the wall. And if he does it, I think they can do it. I really think that the Bucks are just a little bit more talented and also a little bit older, a little bit more mature. Like, and it's not to say like, oh my God, you're telling me that Dan Booker, who's had a fantastic playoffs, can't figure it right. out now? No, he might. He might have like a final series that everyone starts comparing him to Kobe for, which they shouldn't. But like, you know, we might have that moment and that could be, you know, that, you know, Chris Paul might finally have a chance to play in the finals and not be hurt. Like there's things on the sun's end that could definitely happen, but it's like, we were kind of banking on, a younger team to just figure it out when the other team has the answers there. They just never opened up the book. It's too scary because they're afraid of the dust forcing them to sneeze. It's like, <laughs> there's tissues in here, Mike, like just use the <laughs> tissue after you sneeze. But instead he's like, no, I can't open that book. It's, it's a sacred book. It's like, no, we need to be a little bit more inventive because there's so many things they could do. Mike Budenholzer, fun fact, does not have a duster uh, in his house. He doesn't. And also just very allergic to dust. Like it's it's a horrible combination. Oh my gosh. No, that's uh, that's perfect. That is what Mike Budenholzer's co coaching strategy is. He's allergic to dust, but doesn't own a duster. <laughs> like, I'll just use my hand. I've used my hand since I was five years old, and I will keep using this hand. And washing it with water. Have I sneezed uncontrollably multiple times? Has it failed me more times than not? Yes. But will I keep doing it because I know it kind of works? Yes. And Jared, this is a very important final question. So are you the guy where you're sweeping up at your house? You Do you have a dustpan or do you get a single sheet of copy paper to sweep it all to? Okay. So it depends how broke I am at that moment, right? Like, so if I got a dustpan, like I got a dustpan at the cribbo, I can pull it out even if we need to. So like, I do have one at the moment, right? But 
when tough, when times get tough, you just get the piece of paper, how you go on with life and you just accept it. Okay. Right. You gotta, you gotta accept, you gotta be humble in those moments. And, you know, not, life doesn't know, sometimes life just gives you a piece of paper and you have to sweep up the floor in front of you. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm the same way. I think definitely sometimes you gotta be able to make it work with a piece of copy paper. Mike Budenholzer, fun fact, with his clipboard, he has the same piece of copy paper he's been using his whole life to sweep up messes. And he's just like, you know what? I don't want to make any adjustments. This is, piece of paper has been working for me the past 50 years. We're just not going to change anything. Now the bottom of it just has a Greg Popovich signature. <laughs> That's all it is, just right there. Boom, we've solved it. <laughs> NBA Twitter, check out No Filler. We've just solved all the world's problems. Milwaukee fans are going to hate me, but I don't care. No, for sure. Jerry, this has been awesome having you on. Uh, is there anything else you're doing that you want to plug? Um, so I'm at the TV station. Shouts KMUA News coverage. You can count on at all times, right? I'm behind the camera. That's why I have a beard. You guys can't see that. Um, you can always tune, uh, tune in to the Rebuildables or Walking the Field with me and Alex Crow. Um, and follow me on Twitter at Gerald L. Hopkins 1. So you already know. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate spending some time. Yeah, for sure. I'll put your link and stuff in the show description. But yeah, folks, thank you so much for listening to this episode of No Filler with Joe Miller. We'll be back at some point next week. Oh, 